Welcome to Policy Brief, an informed and engaging conversation with policymakers, policy influencers, and public sector professionals brought to you by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and happy to serve as your host. And I'm joined today by an OSU alum of the Moritz College of Law, Kelly Adesina, who's had a distinguished career in public service, having served in both the House and the Senate on the staff side, um, as well as in the U.S. Department of Agriculture as uh, general counsel, then becoming um, the, the head counsel for the House Agriculture Committee, and now is the director of federal relations for Bayer, the pharmaceutical and agriculture company. So Kelly, thank you for joining us today to talk about lobbying, uh, food policy, and some other exciting ventures you're involved in. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. And, and let's just start in with some, some, some basic civics 101. So tell us about why lobbying is so important. And as you're, you're talking about lobbying, you know, we'll set the scene by saying that there, there are many that sort of have a negative connotation associated with lobbying. And, and so disabuse us of that notion that it's a morally compromised activity and instead it's an essential part of governance in the American system. Yeah, I think it's a part of the ecosystem that we have, you know, when you work on uh, Capitol Hill. Often you have uh, staffers who are uh, charged with uh, drafting legislation. And while, you know, uh, they are very educated and smart, it, there's something to be said about actually having the real life experience or working on an issue or being impacted by that issue. So when you have lobbyists, they're the ones that are basically advocating, which is what I like to focus on. The term, like you said, has been disabused and has this very negative connotation. But when you have someone that's able to advocate on behalf of, the, of an issue area, they help you uh, better form the legislative you know, making process. So for example, when I was working on Capitol Hill, there would be times where we would draft legislation in a way that when a lobbyist would come in and say, oh, we know that you have the, um, you, you've drafted it this way because you see that there's a problem here, but the unintended consequences of this, you know, particular, you know, legislation results in X, Y, and Z. So uh, I'll give you an example of um, something around uh, the nutrition assistance program, SNAP, otherwise known as food stamps. So when you are, you know, working on that legislation, it's a very complicated, you know, provision. Um, we would have people come in from like Feeding America or the Food Research and Action, uh, Action Center to say, okay, um, this particular provision, uh, when you try to really apply that in the, you know, real world, there's a little conflict here because when it comes to, for example, signing up a student for, you know, the SNAP program, there's also this impact on WIC, which is the Women and Infant and Children program. And we might not see that connection naturally if I'm on the nutrition, uh, uh, sorry, if I'm on the uh, House Agriculture Committee, because that is something that's dealt with the House Education and Labor Committee. So if I'm on House Ag Committee and I'm really invested in my language, I may not understand or know about this other implication that exists out there, but that advocate who works with the you know, program itself may have this better understanding. So you, know, you need the lobbyists there to, to help you understand like what the implications of what you're drafting really how that turns out. Great. Okay. So we may come back to some of those themes here in a minute, but let's let's talk just to, to set the scene. Um, uh, tell us about the entity for which you advocate for now, Bayer AG. What and, and before we get into what you're lobbying for, just tell us a little bit about Bayer 
um, and, and who it is and what, what it does and, and, and why, why we have a familiarity with it, but perhaps not so familiar with its full range of, of products and services. So I think that people are familiar with Bayer because of aspirin, right? That's the one thing that people talk about. When I mentioned that I was joining Bayer, people would say, oh, the aspirin company. And then they were confused as to why I was joining Bayer because of my background in agriculture. But uh, Bayer is a global company. Uh, we are based in Germany. However, we have our US headquarters um, with the consumer health pharma side in Whippany, New Jersey, and then with our crop science side in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. So in August of 2018, Bayer acquired Monsanto, which is a, you know, was a seed and traits company, uh, chemistry company. And so when they acquired them, they got this significant crop science portfolio. Although Bayer did have um, some crop science uh, aspects of it before acquiring um, Monsanto, but now it has a larger, of course, portfolio. So we have about like 21,000 employees uh, in the US and actually the US is our largest marketplace. And in, on terms of, uh, in terms of the crop science side of the business, we are known for our uh, chemistries like um, our fungicides and our pesticides, insecticides, and also for our seeds and traits. And so we um, have seeds like corn, soybean, um, those kind of things. We uh, have traits that we might put into those seeds uh, for different purposes. So um, Bayer, by virtue of acquiring Monsanto, has expanded its presence in that agriculture side, and we'll, we'll get into that. Um, tell us a little bit about the degree to which Bayer and or Monsanto interacts with government bodies. What are the ways that, that the public sector influences what Bayer and Monsanto can and cannot do? Sure. So, you know, when it comes to our, you know, I mentioned chemistries. Uh, so, for example, we have um, uh, wide known chemistry glyphosate uh, that has to be registered by a governmental body. So it has to be registered by the Environmental Protection Agency. So we have to engage them. We have to go through a series of tests. Uh, it has to be re-registered at least every 15 years. And so we are going back and forth, you know, going over our efficacy studies, our safety studies. And so that's how we engage, you know, uh, NC like EPA. But then when it comes to um, Congress, they're the ones that actually are, you know, developing the laws that impact us. So, you know, Congress develops the laws, the administration, in this case, EPA, um, then does the regula regulations based off of those laws. So we interact with Congress because before we get regulated by EPA, we may want to have a crack at, hey, Congress, you're going to do this legislation. Let us tell you why this is good or let, me, let us tell you why there are some concerns here or how this can be improved or what this actually looks like from an operational standpoint. So let's get into the things that you engage about. Um, so what are the priority policy issues? And here I want to turn our attention to food policy broadly, but also food and agricultural policy as it, as it impacts Bayer. So what are, what are the priorities for, for Bayer in the food and ag space? Uh, so our main you know, businesses is biotech and, and gene editing. Those are kind of like the, the big things. Um, and so everything kind of like emanates from that. But we also are working on issues around climate um, you know, that's very important uh, in today's society. Um, we have uh, engaged around the renewable fuel standard. Uh, so there's like a number of things that, you know, we talk about the way that our office is structured is, you know, I mentioned earlier how we engage uh, based on um, 
um, ideologies, but we also internally uh, divide up the issue areas. So my colleague, for example, she'll cover um, smallholder farmers, climate change, um, conservation. And then I have another uh, colleague who covered the chemistry portfolio. And then for myself, I'm doing the biotech, uh, gene editing, and um, oil seeds and nutrition areas. So that's kind of how we break things up. But um, as I mentioned earlier, the big issues will probably be around biotech, gene editing, renewable fuel standard, and climate. So, oh, and our chemistry, can't forget our chemistry portfolio. So, so the Biden administration has, has come in and prioritized climate. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to I talk about that in a minute, but because you mentioned your areas in the biotech world and in, in gene editing, educate us a little bit about mm -hmm. what, what is that? And, and then what, what, is, what is Bear's stake in that? So I, I love answering this question. I think that when it comes to the gene editing and the GMO conversation, there's always a, a, a great deal of education that could be had here. Um, myself, I had to be educated on this when I came to Bayer, just so I could understand, you know, that there are, you know, some lines of separation there. When we think about gene editing, we're talking about, you know, making improvements within the DNA that's already in a plant for example. Um, but when we're talking about genetically modified, we are talking about um, adding something to that, you know, a plant that might not be native to that plant. And it could be something like uh, to build up resistance against, you know, um, a pest or, you know, a pathogen or something to that effect. Same thing with gene editing. So from that perspective, I think my number one piece is educating people about gene editing and GMOs. Um, I, when it comes to GMOs, there's a lot of um, you know, conversation around GMOs. I still think that there's a lot of you know, consumer interest in this area. So a large part of what I do is engage members of you know, Congress to let them know about what it is, what is an actual GMO and the safety of it and how it's been used for quite some time. Um, as far as you know, uh, what we're looking at, USDA, uh, the department, sorry, the, the United States Department of Agriculture, and then EPA, which I mentioned earlier, those are two federal uh, entities that I engage with, you know, uh, fairly often. And part of it is because uh, when it comes to gene editing and GMOs, uh, USDA is the chief agency that is looking at, um, that regulates those matters. And so, you know, we engage there quite a bit. Um, the other thing too around the conversation is just making sure people understand the safety and the rigor that goes into, you know, uh, the products that we, you know, put forth in the market. Uh, I don't think people really understand how much money is spent researching on these products, you know, and just kind of in the R&D process and the, the number of years it takes to get a product to market, you know, it can be over a decade of research um, and, and money before you can actually get a product to market. This, this goes back to the question I was asking at the very beginning about the sort of negative connotation around lobbying, <clears throat> the concern that many people have that, that lobbyists aren't necessarily truthful. They're, they're representing the interests of their, whatever entity it is, because they are, their preference is to advance that, that entity's interests. So you're, you're pointing out here that your bear engages in a lot of research to demonstrate the efficacy of whatever the intervention is, the chemistry or the gene modification, and then ultimately its safety. How do you, how do you address the concerns of members who say, 
yeah, you're presenting me some information about safety, but fundamentally you're, you're presenting information about your, your company's interests. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you balance those things and how do you try to make the case for, um, again, the efficacy or the safety of the, the product that you're advocating for knowing that there's, there's this concern that, that some might have about, about the role of lobbying? Yeah, well, I, I think you saw uh, acknowledging that the two can be, you know, truthful statements, right? You know, you can advocate for uh, your your product and say, you know, and, and acknowledge that this is going to impact the bottom line, but you're also saying too that this product is safe, right? Like we have a reputation that we want to uphold, and so if we are not being honest about our engagement with the government or our engagement with our customers, then that's problematic. So, you know, we make sure that we emphasize like, yes, this is, you know, we're being honest and truthful about our safety. Um, and, and if someone asks us, you know, doesn't this help you out with your bottom line? Absolutely, because we're in the business to sell, you know, seeds and traits and, you know, all those other things. But that shouldn't necessarily be seen as a bad thing, right? I mean, this is why, you know, businesses ex exist. And what I've learned too in working on the Hill is that any entity, whether they be a business or a nonprofit, or a union, you know, they're always going to advocate for their position. You know, um, when I was a staffer, I would often ask, uh, you know, those uh, different entities, what would your opposition say? You know, so if, if we present this and you're telling me that this is, we need to do this, this thing, you know, what would the opposition say? And why would they say it's a bad thing? You know, how would they respond to that? And as a staffer, I want to know that because I wanted to have a full picture of the situation and then make my best judgment based off the information that was been presented to me. So I do the same thing now that I'm a lobbyist. You know, I present the information and, you know, someone asks, yes, you know, um, it's, what would the opposition say? I'm going to be truthful, but I'm still going to make the case for why I, I want you to do this action. And I think that it makes sense. That's how you are an effective lobbyist. And I've seen that happen, you know, for lobbyists that represent businesses lobbyists that represent, you know, nonprofits and, you know, and the like. So now let's, let's pivot to, to climate change, since that's another area of great central importance facing the, the, the country, the globe. Um, and the Biden administration has, has presented this as one of its sort of its top priorities. Um, talk to us about Bayer's interest in this and, and what's, what's, the, what's the issue that you're advocating for there? So we're still exploring, you know, some things around climate and my colleague, she is much more learned on this issue than I am. So I do want to give that caveat. Um, but when it comes to, to climate, you know, we're thinking about how to uh, monetize carbon capture. You know, right now uh, we think about how can farmers um, um, play a part in addressing climate change. And part of that is when, and when the farmers are tilling you know, the ground, there are carbon emissions that come off of that, right? And so we're trying to figure out how can we capture more carbon in the soil? Part of that is you know, these different um, you know, uh, sustainability measures like no tillage or low tillage and that kind of thing. And so this is something that farmers are already doing in terms of capturing that carbon in the soil. So now we're trying to figure out how can we help with this process? What does that look like? Um, and so that's one example of what we're doing. There's probably some other examples that if my colleague was here, she would, you know, kind of uh, walk down that whole, you know, list of things. But um, that's probably the biggest thing that we're talking about right now. So make the, the so back to your, your comment earlier about trying to pursue something that is advantageous for consumers, customers, in this case, farmers, the producers, 
Um, and then with climate change, it's all of us. It's a sort of pure public good. Um, what's the business case for Bayer to be promoting um, uh, you know, carbon capture? Um, I, as far as I know, they don't have a carbon capture product to sell. Why, why does Bayer have a stake in that particular kind of approach to addressing climate change? I think you know there's you'll see from a lot of companies that you know everyone's trying to figure out a way to do their part right and to play a role in this conversation. We know that there's something there. We've been experimenting with it, you know, for a little bit of time and just trying to figure out how do we monetize it. So we know it's something that farms are already doing. And so to the extent that we can be helpful in this regard and figure out a way to be mutually beneficial for both parties, that's what we're trying to do. We also know that USDA is exploring, you know, this as well. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to see what can happen there. You know, we don't have all the answers just yet, but it is something that we've been talking about for quite some time. So talk to us a little bit about, in light of climate change being such a central priority for the Biden administration. So I wanna sort of get at um, some insight, insight into how lobbying works and how you think about how to strategize so the Biden administration has put that among a number of priorities as sort of cross service and cross, um, you know, sort of policy issues. This is one that, that will be a priority. How do, you, how do you think as a lobbyist about how to position the kinds of things that are of interest to your company, Bear, within that array of things that are identified as priorities of the administration? So, you know, gene editing is not something I've heard the Biden administration talk about yet. So how, how do you raise that the profile of gene editing, knowing that it's climate, it's the pandemic, it's a whole series of other major issues that are consuming the administration? That's a great question. Uh, I think that as lobbyists, we're always kind of, you know, struggling with that one, whether it be the administration or a member office, we're always trying to figure out how do you get the attention of, you know, a member when your issue may not necessarily be on the top of their list. I think the the one tried and true thing that most of us do would be or will is, excuse me, is that you look at, you know, what does that member, you know, find or deem to be important? Same thing with the administration. What's important to this administration right now? Climate. So you, you know, you go in and you talk to them and you figure out what they're doing and you also then connect what you're doing or what you can do and to see how you can be helpful. Once you have that, you know, initial conversation and you build a rapport, then you're able to talk about the other things that might be important to your business. But I think that the, the smartest thing to do when you're trying to engage, you know, administration or members of Congress on issues uh, is just to identify what's important to them. And then two, um, kind of like making it a little bit different for members of Congress, you think about their district, right? If they're a House member or if they're a Senate, you think about the state. You know, what's the driving issue in that state? What's important? You know, if I was going to talk to someone out of Iowa, I would probably talk about, you know, corn issues or the renewable fuel standard because that's something that's really big. You know, Iowa is a big corn producing, you know, state. Or if I would, you know, want to talk to, you know, a, a member from Mississippi, I want to talk about cotton and, you know, our products down there and what we're using, like dicamba and how we're using that to, you know, help with, um, it's one of our chemistries that we're using down there to help with the, with their cotton uh, products. So you, you have to identify what's important to, that person, whether it be because of their district or, you know, a, a product or something that's, you know, prevalent in their area, you have to make that connection. So I'm, I'm, I'm always a beneficiary of the insights of the guests here. So this is great to get some insight into lobbying. 
So talk, talk a little bit about how you conceive of the strategy of where you focus your efforts. So we talked earlier about federal versus state, and you have a separate team that, that looks at, at, at state issues. But you've already mentioned you know, the administration, members of Congress, committees. Um, what, what does the landscape look like as you're crafting your strategy about how to advance an issue? And as you think about the traditional public entities that you put in there, the branches of government, what role does the public play too? How much of your job is trying to educate the average citizen who comes from those districts you were mentioning earlier about some of these issues, right? So as, as people start to conceive of ideas around gene editing and frankenfood or whatever it may be, how much is your job trying to influence that part of the conversation as opposed to those more intimate conversations with members of, of, of Congress or the administration? So we also have a team that will, you know, take care of that as well. I'm not on that team, but we have our communications folks. We have uh, stakeholder engagement. We also have issue management. So uh, one of the things I learned coming to a company like Bayer is that you have all these great, you know, uh, colleagues that, you know, have these um, very specific uh, entities that they engage. And so fortunately, you know, those teams will do that kind of work. But I wanted to take a moment to talk about the uh the use of trade associations, because I haven't discussed that just yet. So, uh, you know, Bayer is a part of a number of trade associations. The trade associations can be based off of, you know, um, you know, the products in which you use. So there's, for example, uh, ASTA, the American Seed Trade Association, or there's BIO. Um, and then you also have, you know, like I mentioned earlier, oh, I did mention this one, CropLife International. So you have all these different trade associations too that you can work with to, to really push the message forward. Uh, they're gonna have, um, you know, more of an ability to get that message across. Um, because of the sheer number of um, uh, companies that are members of that trade association. But then we also work with, you know, entities like the American Farm Bureau Association. And so by working with the American Farm Bureau, um, we're able to talk to, you know, farmers about our products and the things that we're using and find out ways to work together uh, to advance our issues of common interest. Same thing with the commodity groups like the, you know, sugar beet growers and, you know, and the like. So as a lobbyist, you know, yes, I spend a lot of my time engaging members of Congress and the administration, but I also spend a significant time with the trade associations. And, you know, what typically what happens as a lobbyist is that you go to these different meetings and you talk about an issue made that may be impacting your company. And of course you find out that that issue is not impacting just your companies, impacting other companies as well. Sometimes, depending on the trade association, you might have companies that are a little bit larger in stature versus, you know, smaller ones. So you try to figure out how can we coalesce and find a an, an solution that works for all of us. Um, other times, it may be that the, the issues are just different. And so you can't come to a consensus on, you know, a kind of one fits all kind of policy. But that's another way that I do my work is by engaging the trade associations. Last question about the inside art of lobbying. Talk a little bit about timing. Um, so you served in the Hill in a variety of roles, and then you had a, a year in the administration, so to speak, in the Department of Agriculture. So you've seen a little bit on the administration side and a lot on the con congressional side. So you have a new administration that's coming in. How important is that newness? You know, new members of Congress, new members of the administration. What's your window like to try and influence um, during this period? 
Oh, that's a good one too. It it, it depends, right? Uh, sometimes you, you want to get in there early so that you can kind of get the first opportunity, the first crack of a, a new member or, you know, a, a new person in the administration because you want to be like, okay, I want to have the opportunity, you know, to get in there before, you know, someone with the opposing view may get in there. Other times you might just want to, you know, take your time a little bit to learn and see how that, that new member, it, you know, is going to play out in terms of, what's important to that member, you know, how do they engage uh, lobbyists and, and other, you know, entities. So you have to have a little bit of time where you're just kind of learning more. So the timing piece, it, it really is just kind of um, uh, a case-by-case, -case, you know, situation. And so there's no real good, I guess, strategy to kind of figure out how soon to get in there uh, because you sometimes have to see how things play out. But then other times you've got to get in there fast before the other person gets in there and they control the narrative. So this is kind of an abrupt transition, but we'll take the idea of new and shift to something new that you're involved in as we bring this conversation to a, to a close. Um, so so soon? Oh I know it goes fast. <laughs> I, there's so many more things I want to ask you, but, but I'm very keen to hear about a new organization that you've helped to establish, which is Black Professionals in Food and Agriculture. So talk a little bit about what is it, what started it, what caused you and your peers to, to bring this organization to, to fruition? Yeah, so I really wish that um, my colleagues could be here as well, because I think if you would ask each of us why we you know, developed this organization, you might have slightly different answers. Um, but I think that we all had a common interest in you know, building and uplifting you know, Black professionals in this space. Um, for me, I noticed that there weren't a lot of professionals that looked like me in, in this in this space. You know, I've been working in this the ag food and ag industry for about eight years, and I will often notice that I went to meetings, I was the only person that looked like me, and I thought that that was an opportunity to you know build a pipeline and you know just encourage more people to pursue careers in this space. And so that's why you know I you know wanted to take part of this um, this new development. I think that you know we're we're still you know new. We just um, launched our website last week. Um, I'm going to give a little plug: bpfadc.org. Um, but we just launched our website last week. But we actually, you know, one of our first actions was an op-ed that we did um, on Black Friday, so November of last year, and we talked about the need for just diversity and inclusion in the food and ag space, particularly, you know, at agencies like USDA. And in that, you know, we kind of made some uh, suggestions on like things that the USDA could be thinking about as it, you know, entered into uh, the, the hiring of, uh, of new employees. Because at that time, you know, we knew uh, what the administration was going to be like because of the, you know, outcome of the election. So we just thought it was a good opportunity, you know, to voice support for, um, you know, having diverse perspectives at the uh, department. So let's let's pull this apart a little bit more. Um, why aren't there more black professionals in the food and agriculture policy space broadly? What, what, have, what given you've had experience and, and you, you notice there aren't as many people like you in, in the various places you've been in, what's your explanation as to why that's the case? You know, honestly, it's a hard question to ask, right? And start to answer. Um, what I've observed is that sometimes the opportunities haven't necessarily been um, as uh, as overt, uh, overt um, excuse me, I'm thinking of a, a better word, as a parent to some, 
as they might have been to others. Uh, for myself, like I grew up in New Jersey, I'm from the Garden State, but I, I grew up in, you know, a very uh, metropolitan area of town um, from Newark, New Jersey. It's called Brick City because mm -hmm. of all the high rise buildings that we had. And, you know, I didn't participate in, in groups like 4-H or the Future Farms of America. And I think sometimes when you're looking at um, recruiting uh, people of color, sometimes people look to those organizations like a 4-H and an FFA. Um, there are organizations like Manners, the Minorities in Agriculture, Natural Resources, and Related Sciences, um, you know, um, organization. So now people are starting to really, you know, uh, know more about them and look to them too for opportunities in this field. But I think part of it is just, you know, people not necessarily tapping uh, into the talent that's there or thinking that, you know, perhaps if you didn't grow up, you know, in certain areas, then you may not have an interest in the food and ag space. Um, the other aspect of it is, you know, trying to just make people know that there are, you know, a wide range of opportunities when it comes to food and ag, everything from, you know, uh, scientists and, you know, kind of um, policy persons, you know, like myself, uh, to, to, you know, uh, people who work in, um, you know, seeds and traits and, you know, pathology. And so there's just, it's a lot or research or extension. There's a lot out there. And so part of it too, is just making sure people are aware of those opportunities. So make the case for, for why, in addition to just, and I shouldn't say just, but there's clearly an imperative for equal treatment and equal opportunity for people of all backgrounds and races. And if, if a particular group, in this case, black professionals have been excluded, by all means, they should be um, given opportunities to, to participate. But, but go a little deeper and make the case for why is this particular area so critical for, for black voices to be a part of? What is the stake um, for, for Black Americans, Black citizens in the agriculture and food space? You know, I think, honestly, if I take a step back, it's about making sure that that voice is present in, in any conversation, you know, no matter, you know, I work in food and agriculture, so of course that's what I'm interested in, but Black voices should be, you know, represented in any issue across the spectrum. And so I think with us, we just saw that there was, an, um, you know, there was a, a void that needed to be filled. And so we wanted to make sure that people hear our voices because there's a different perspective, you know, that we may be able to share. Just like anything else, you know, if you have grown up um, in certain circumstances, you know, whether you grew up in like maybe an urban area, you may have a different outlook on issues than someone who grew up in the South. Or if you grew up, you know, working on certain commodities, you're going to have a different perspective than you will have as someone who, you know, worked in soybeans or, you know, um, especially crops like vegetables. So for us, it's just making sure that there are diverse voices. So there are diverse perspectives at the table um, and, and just making sure that we're included in conversations and not left out. Well, that's an absolutely worthy reason to launch an organization like this. And so I, I know I speak on behalf of everyone who's listening that we, we hope that this is a success. And, and I'm glad you put in the plug for the, the website and hopefully people will go there and get involved. Um, and, and Kelly, I wanna thank you for spending time and what I know is a busy schedule to talk with me today and for the good work you do trying to advocate for your company's interests, but for the broader interests of, of, of all of us in terms of the, the ability to access food and, 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 and get it in a way that's safe and, and beneficial. 
Thank you so much again for having me. This is a, a great discussion. I think that what you all are doing is phenomenal. So I'm just happy that I was able to participate. Great. Thanks, Kelly. Stay safe.